destroying the entire universe. an Ixundraconus fan podcast broadcasting from a post-Demos orbit on Voltaire Station. With me this week is Ashtar, Wines, and I'm your host, Corbeau. So I don't have a question for this one, so there's that. This is episode 65 of... I don't think I asked a question last time either, so maybe I'll just ignore that fact. And well, I think the question episode. for this time, Corbeau, is do you have your ID card? And I know that for you the answer is no, you don't. <laughs> No, I left it in the other pod. This is episode 64 of Radio Free Deimos, IRPF Town. And I have to say that every episode after episode 50 is kind of amazing to me that we've gotten this far. Uh, yeah. Although there was a year break in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain where to go next with the show. We are wrapping up one of our biggest arcs ever, 14 to 20 episodes on the Megacorps. That's, that's pretty big. That's like a third of our episodes so far. So after that, I'm not totally sure where we want to go. I kind of think that maybe taking a tour of the blue skies might be useful because they don't get a lot of traffic. And also because the write-ups of them are only kind of quasi-canon, but we helped with them. So maybe we can kind of get that out in the public space a little bit and say thank you to the people that created those because there'll be another Kickstarter coming soon. Which is useful both as a showcase of different places you can go and kind of a showcase of some of the things that the community have brought to the product. Yeah, I think so. That'll be a nice nice little uh, maybe five or six episode set there probably can't spend an entire episode on one of them. Maybe we can. I don't know. But for um, the next two episodes are going to be TTI and TTI. Possibly we'll have to have a third on TTI because they're the, probably the heaviest corp in terms of lore. But after that, I'm thinking maybe two, maybe an episode on um, just kind of 20 questions from our friends and, and listeners. Uh, things we missed on the corporations, like circle back on rumors that we should have followed up on, um, unanswered questions about Marsco things we just forgot about spyglass that sort of thing if you have any uh thoughts on that if you have any topics you want to bring up or extra places we should touch base on in progenitus or whatever feel free to reach us on twitter at rfdeimos or radiofreedemos at gmail.com or just say hi to me on the hsd chat on discord this episode is brought to you by your automatic security fee it's not theft if you agreed to it before you were born yes you were born with the receipt in hand <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I was reading um, the official HSD Twitter, um, that's HSD underscore HQ, and uh, this is like a few months ago. I've been trying to play catch up on the community for a while now. Uh, Emmy had asked what your favorite HSD NPCs were, and I don't know if you have any that kind of lingered in your mind. I forget the name, but the the blue and red fox's character is very striking. Oh, that would be uh, Rio, I think. She's the IRPF poster girl. Poster girl? Poster child. Poster Fox. And that was kind of my mine was from that pair because her partner is a giant lateral wolf. And I think my interest in him is not necessarily healthy. But I, I like him. <laughs> and the, the, the canary that we met in um, that Pulse slash TTI module uh, game that Emmy worked with us on where we were kind of on a TTI ship. And there was this really animated canary NPC that we kind of chatted around with for a while. I like that one a lot. I think there was a lot of clones of them too. But I do have to say that since we are semi-canon and we are object 27, I think, in the system, my favorite NPC is you guys. Oh. 
Oh, my favorite NPC is myself, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was brought to my attention during our last episode on IRPF that I left out a huge chapter on IRPF because I hadn't read it yet. And that was um, some information in Insight number four. Insight is the monthly almost magazines, like a three or four or five page article each month on some topic or some battle maps or something. Uh, It's told through the deeply unreliable narrator, Lonnie, who's kind of Skullbat Foxsnake. I don't know. Yeah, she's got wings and a skull tattoo. Uh, We we learn a lot about her over the course of the uh, series so far. So issue four focuses on a giant, like game-breakingly large grotto called The Shambles. And there's a lot about this, I think, that is it's just a very different direction than anything in HST so far. And I think it kind of takes the game in some slightly new directions. It's a grotto with like three million people in it. This is a floating cluster of loosely moored together space crapola, uh, old rockets and such, somewhere in the Venus to Earth transit area, I think. So very golden zone. Um, but it's like a 500 kilometer cloud of rubble that's been kind of bolted together and it's been there for quite some time but there's millions of vectors in it and that's that's kind of amazing that is millions of vectors that do not have ledgers and are not tied to any corporation and i think that's kind of a very different world than anything we've been exposed to before in the game huh yeah there's a lot of possibility for people laundering there Oh, totally, totally. Or being murdered if you go in there with all of your, like, corpse sensors. And and uh, I, I kind of wonder what a ledger does interacting with other things. So does even having a ledger in an area kind of ping somehow to the corporations? Maybe? It's like a financial tracker? I don't know. But they're very, very, um, I'm not paranoid, but definitely wary of outsiders. Okay, so they, they do not have any close relationships with any of the corporations? No, certainly not with the corporations. Well, they have a relationship with IRPF. And that's kind of where... No, no, not a good one at all. And that's uh, what I think uh, Emmy was bringing up, was that this is a place where IRPF has no uh, manager, no contracts. And IRPF is only really IRPF when they're under contract. Now, bear in mind, this is Lonnie, who's a a snake bat fox thing. And she is a spyglass character who sells secrets to the highest bidder. She's an extremely unreliable narrator, not, not like me. So, I mean, take everything she says about IRPF with a grain of salt, because Spyglass versus IRPF, they, they're not friends. But it's interesting. She kind of talks about a plot of, like, I, some sort of rescue mission, I think. I don't really remember that well. It's been a few days. Mapping this area is kind of ridiculous. It's just all these vague patches on the graph paper that say, uh, don't go here. This place kind of okay. Didn't like this one. Oh, God. Never go here again. Don't know about this place. It's just kind of these vague clouds of how dangerous it is. Huh. I guess the possibility that pieces of it might move around since it's kind of loosely held together. Yeah, it might be somewhat unmappable, although I don't know how. Well, I guess gravity over 500 kilometers might shear a little bit. Not much. And eh, not, not a huge amount. Oh, yeah, a, a good sneeze would be escape velocity there. <laughs> and we don't really know how old it is, but I think it's probably in the like 300 year old period because, I mean, it's in the Venus area and likely incorporates some technology from the Venus uh, terraforming period. So it's, it's as old as most things, as old as it's really anything meaningful in the game at this point. I need setting. So who knows what history is lying around there? Right, down towards the core. Well, and it's not going to be on any major like Solnet database for sure. Now, this is all during like established timetable stuff. So there's probably not any ancient secrets, but it does go pretty far back into um, 
and probably ASR history in particular. Yeah. Also, probably not a lot of stuff that hasn't been pried off the floor and used for something else after a couple hundred years. Right. So, yeah, like, there's no, like, gold statues lying around for sure. Just this box of Hamdingers that no one will touch. <laughs> the Hamdingers, yeah. <laughs> so, the thing, one of the quotes from there is something along the lines of, the IRPF exists where support systems exist. They patrol where the system supports them, and they answer to hierarchy for things like judgment and jurisdiction. But out in the black, there are no hierarchies. So this is a place where IRPF cuts loose and is just as dangerous as any other corporation. <laughs> One thing we mentioned last episode was that IRPF can maybe be contracted for individuals, and this is not really the case so much. Uh, I forget if it was that article or just a discussion with uh, Emmy, but um, kind of the clarification was that IRPF rarely works at an individual level. They work for managers and organizations and for the top of the hierarchy locally. So if you have an IRPF bodyguard, A, it means that bodyguard is contracted by your corp. B, it means that your bodyguard that's supposed to be protecting you is contracted by the corp and not you. So that can be uh, taken away very easily. Which could be a reason for non-IRPF security to exist if you don't right. want to come with baggage. Well, in another place, we might need to hire a ragtag group of uh, misfits. No, never do that. <laughs> no, no. Seriously. So if you're not on the HSD Patreon, please do join the HSD Patreon and support the product and support the line. Patreon.com slash WGF Productions. And I think for like the lowest entry level pledge, you can get access to Insight. And that's only the last two issues of Insight. Uh, beyond that, they're free. So go and visit them. And uh, if you want the hot stuff before your players see it, you're going to have to pay up a little money. There is a $50 a month membership level, and I'm kind of upset that there's a membership level that I do not subscribe to, but I think you go there, you get like all the 3D printed stuff, and we just never used that, so I hadn't gone quite that far yet. We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So last episode, we talked about kind of the lore of IRPF and the history, and this episode, we're going to be talking for as long as I have my voice about uh, life in an IRPF town, although one of the problems with that is there really aren't that many IRPF towns. There are a few, and we can briefly talk about life in them, but it's kind of boring. Have y'all? Are there, are there any big named ones? Uh, there really aren't that many named corp towns, period, anywhere. Like, I can only, maybe I can list five, like five if I really dug. Okay. And most of those are in um, contracts, which are kind of semi-canon. I mean, the, the suggestion is that IRPF, broadly speaking, does not have corp towns. They tend to be in other corporations' territory and, like, overlap with them. And if there is an IRPF corp town, it's like a military base, which, if y'all had too much experience there, it's not my native territory. But, like, the military town we visited in Kyle, it was kind of a lot of little, little uh, port of buildings. It had a very visit there but don't live there sort of feel to it. In, in Sound and Silence, they say that, for the most part, IRPF corp towns are places to leave. Because you're not going to raise very high in the hierarchy of IRPF there. Anybody that's there is like a diehard IRPF purist, and they really wouldn't benefit from being there. So that's a very temporary sort of transitional place. I mean, maybe the IRPF base on every planet or every continent is one of these, is an IRPF corp town. But even that sounds like it's probably not likely the case, where they could just station up in a single megastructure or something like that. IRPF is not its own territory. Or in their many, many ships. Right. Yeah, the ships are really where IRPF life really takes place. Uh, most of the corps get a nice write-up of their corp towns in uh, Sound and Silence. IRPF just talks about their ships, which is, I mean, that's where it is. IRPF ships are meant to be lived in, although even they don't sound like they're meant to be lived in for long. Really? Huh. 
I, I thought that they, they mentioned that they're just like very, very large, spacious. They're large. Depends on what you mean by spacious. Like, I mean, maybe the size is on the Starship Enterprise level of size, but your uh, quarters aren't going to be that good. I mean, even a like Admiral is probably not going to have the floor space in his personal bunk that like a CEO of another company might have. It's not luxurious. It tends to be Spartan, small, not really a place to have your creature comforts. That's also kind of assuming that uh, the rank and file have personal bunks and aren't just heart swapping everything. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. They might just uh, have, since it's a 24-hour shift all the time, they might just you know have eight hours crash time and then move on. Um, I'm kind of feeling like for PC-level characters, it's likely that you have your own like tiny quarters or something like that, or maybe a, a shared room with a couple of people or something like that. Like you, you probably have your own wall somewhere. Well, if our party had been sensible and went with the IFB, RPF ship option, then we would have found out. But no. No, not a sensible party of adventurers, surely. We, we wanted a ship that drooled. I wanted the Pulse ship with a floating zero-gravity hot tub. Pulse ship would have been excessive. Awesome. That's, that's the Enterprise. That's a, that's a ship you can really like manspread on the, the captain's chair on. So IRPF ships, they almost always have gravity. That's actually kind of rare, which is something I don't think necessarily is that well known. Um, most ships don't have gravity. IRPFs tend to have um, gravity because, A, they do a lot of deployment actions. And for most vectors, when you land on a new planet, you spend like three days throwing up. It's called grav soup. And you're like, it's like the flu, kind of, I guess, as your body just massively readjusts to this new climate. But in IRPF ships, they'll uh, tune the gravity to where you're going. So, you know, the voyage might be a little bit horrible, but you get there and you're fine. And if you have to deploy instantly to face an enemy opposition, you're you're good. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, whether you might, I mean, like ships have different shifts to always have people on duty, whether you might actually, if you're big enough, be able to keep different people in different environmental readiness. Yeah, like, like okay, your shift for for this month, you're going to be training for high gravity. So we got you if we need you. The three o'clock gravity shift. Yeah. <laughs> but your body is going to be mostly subjected to it. And this is a very large shift that you like cordon off things. I don't think we really know how gravity works in, in HSD. Oh, the artificial gravity. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, on a blue sky, it's, it's tumble gravity. But I think this is like a, just a magnetron under the main floor or something like that. And if your feet were metal, that would mean something. <laughs> I just pulled a word out of out of the air. Thank you. You did. You did. You jerk. And I, and I noticed. Fine. Cogs, though, always oh, stuck to the yeah. floor. There was kind of the suggestion that there might only be gravity on the main bridge in some ships, or that if there was going to be gravity, it would always be on the main bridge, and we don't know about the rest of the ship. So maybe there's like a long gravity plank, and the uh, side areas aren't quite so gravitically oriented. I don't know. That was just like a one-word, one-off, so I can't really prove that in court. It's it's an interesting question, though, from a world-building perspective. How does the artificial gravity, you know, affect the ships, and how easy it is to set up and maintain? Can be both a interesting trouble for a lot of campaigns, and would have a very low-level effect on ship design, transport mm-hmm. design, a, a whole lot of stuff. When you look at the gravity soup, that's also the effect of basically changing from one gravity to a different type of gravity. If you're doing something a lot slower say, over two weeks, which conveniently is the travel time to get from point A to point B anywhere in Seoul, Yes, one would assume that you wouldn't have the same problem. So if IRPF personnel are used to transitioning their gravity on the fly anywhere they're going anywhere, they might not experience gravity soup very often. 
what we do know about gravity is that it is expensive. Uh, it's uncommon, and it's particularly uncommon on small ships. Whereas in IRPF, even the small ships tend to have gravity. So your skiffs, you're going to be able to, you know, find your wallet when you drop it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking of just in, in terms of like if if you have bunks that are very very low cost, like in CJ Cherry's description of the the, the miners who have these t- tiny ships and go out in zero g for months at a time which of course is bad for your skeleton that when you go to sleep you strap yourself into your your bunk and then it spins very rapidly because it's not a very large arm but it's the only way to get any meaningful artificial gravity in a tiny ship for almost free don't open your eyes while you're sleeping <laughs> yeah i think the gravity's gravity in hsd is kind of like time traveling across the system it's really only a plot point when it's a plot point so when you wake up is the bunk spinning or is the ship spinning? When you're on an IRPF ship, there's a concept of the din. That is it kind of no matter where you are, it's always like on the edge of work time. Like even if you're in the board game areas, you're always on call. So you may not be on duty at that particular point in time, but you're ready to be on duty. You're kind of psychologically prepared to suddenly have a boarding action or something. That's not a euphemism. That's a thing that might occur. So generally speaking, you're in work mode more often than not, which I think if you're living at home and working at home in the COVID world, COVID, COVID world, uh, you deal with that a lot anyway. Concept is you're always, you're never really totally relaxed in an IRPF ship, which I think is another reason why maybe the IRPF ships are not the luxuries that you might imagine they are. The real cushy job that people want is the one that's on, on ground. Mm-hmm. Or in a station. No, Although maybe. I don't know that that's necessarily unique to IRPF. I, I get the feeling that TTI doesn't really get a chance to let their hair down very often either. Spyglass probably has that same, you know, that the paranoia never goes away type of thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, the most leisurely corp is probably ASR. Or, I mean, Marsco too, but ASR has such a science backed up, like an autom- automation back- backed up backed up leisure lifestyle that I think they probably have more assists than anybody else. Marsco has a very definite, defined leisure lifestyle. You can look at any of their vectors calendars and see at least four different blocks that are clearly delineated for leisure activity. <laughs> okay. Whereas ASR is just switch on the auto VP and go to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> on ship, there's probably a zone that's called like the soft zone. That's recreational, but not really. It's like you wouldn't go play um, arcade games there, but you might have yoga or you know, quiet time with a self-help book or something like that. It's kind of functional leisure space. Um, that's usually near the near the uh, crew quarters area, kind of the off off duty wing of the ship. The biggest zone in an IRPF ship is the floor. We talked about this last time. It's kind of the deck uh, that you always see in every episode of Battlestar Galactica. Like there's that, that like long room where all the people are working on mechanic and things mechanics and things like that. Maybe that's it. Uh, it's modular kind of Marscoe space, so it's set up for offices sometime and then drill patrol training the next. Wherever, if it's happening, it's on the uh, the floor. And that's the area that tends to have artificial gravity more strongly than other areas if that's an issue for that particular ship. I don't know. I do have a question about that, though. IRPF ships are known for some of their technologies. They're very good ships for, like, jetting around in. Uh, powerful drives, very maneuverable. So a lot of the rest of the ship has like handles and things like, I guess, crash and attach points, that sort of thing. So you don't really fly around too much if it suddenly like rotates 90 degrees at thousands of miles an hour. But I do wonder what happens on the floor when that when that occurs. 
Yeah, that's that's awkward. I mean, yeah, big, big open spaces in a spaceship. If you haven't completely conquered inertia and gravity, can become very very dangerous very quickly. Yeah, which we haven't. So I do kind of wonder what happens on the the floor when you throw on the brakes. Floor is equipped with canisters of quickset foam. As soon as a large enough inertial change is detected, poof, poof, it's a foam party, and then everybody's oh. stuck. Okay, I guess it can disintegrate pretty quickly afterwards with like nanite minnow foam party breakdown tools. <laughs> also, having lots of bulkheads is probably a really good idea. Just if you have some quick, quick deploy bulkheads, don't nap in the middle of those. <laughs> can I ask a really uh, stupid question? Sure. What's a bulkhead? Uh, just a, a, a huge door dividing different areas so you can seal off. Like okay. if, if a section has a hole in it, seal off the bulkheads. And that way that section loses atmosphere, but the si- on either side, you're okay. Okay. It implies a little bit more than that. It also implies that that's like a wall. Uh, the bulkhead and the bulkhead door is going to be connected with a wall that separates different sections. So you wouldn't have a lot of corridors through a bulkhead. You would usually only have one, maybe two large blast doors. So when you seal the bulkhead, that section of the ship is isolated. Mm-hmm. So I do think this will file under the category of corporate mystery. What happens when you do, do a bootlegger reverse on an IRBF ship? We'll, we'll ask Emmy that one. That would be uh, Tuesday, 638. <laughs> they also have really good communication technology. Basically, I think the model is kind of like a FEMA-style deployment ship. An IRPF ship can go to a, a planet or a hot zone or whatever, or an area where the local grid has been taken down and establish a Solnet connection, establish a communication hub immediately. So they can go deploy and set up the nexus for a major operation with very little effort. That's kind of what they're designed to do. That's that's important stuff. Yeah. Logistics, logistics, logistics. Yeah. I think a neat major MacGuffin ship would be like maybe they have two of these in their entire fleet. A major command vessel combined with a geomat. So this thing can kind of station and deploy for an instant major colony, which you might see that if something like Mercury goes rogue or something like that. Just as an idea. <laughs> I feel like the geomats don't really have a very strong presence in Sol 700. Like we, like we don't know how many they are or how common they are or where they are. It's kind of just an open question. Are those the, the city building printers? Yeah, I mean, every city has like a lot of small ones too, but the big ones are like the space geomats. They're the ones that you can probably deploy two of to build a blue sky or something like that. Just a question. And then you discover they're just a little bit off and you've got a two, two millimeter wide crack running down the center of your blue sky. Have you been enjoying remodeling the uh, station lately? I know I have. <laughs> Fortunately, you've got, you've got many cubic meters of... of what's a step up from that? Hectometers? Decameters. Many cubic decameters of caulk, space caulk. <laughs> yeah, space caulk. The, the, the ships are cool. They're, they're, they're very manly. They've got kind of this Ford truck aesthetic going on. Yeah, very solid. I mean, that's that's probably Marsco-style architecture, very blocky, but but they move fast. And, and they subtly say, don't mess with us. Not subtly, actually. When when you're in a uh, IRPF town, the ships are on display. Like, that. that is their their presence and their fleet, so... Probably they are better than a, a Marsco ship. They're, they're, they're meant to look intimidating and impressive. Marsco ships are made to cozy up to the loading dock as quickly and easily as possible. That's definitely not what IRPF is for. Yeah, I, I, th- I think modular and IRPF ships do have a certain element of that. But yeah, they're, they're power ships that perform really well. So 
So yeah, I'm 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 a lost base there. You look at a Marsco ship, you're like, I could have put that together. <laughs> <laughs> Marsco, now with more umlauts. It's from IKEA. <laughs> Even the technical manuals are all simply cartoon people. <laughs> so it's the game book. Banner in Rector, yes. <laughs> people you might meet in an IRBF town. I want to talk subsidiaries first, mainly because it's hard to. There aren't that many of them. But I can imagine some major like organizational fault lines. Uh, one would be uh, Townies versus Brass. That's probably a big division. It's like the IRPF slash Marsco versus IRPF, IRPF. I think every time we've talked about IRPF morality, this has come up, is what happens to the locals when they have to deal with the more isolated, pure corp types. And kind of along those lines, I would wonder if if like each flavor of IRPF corp by corp is almost its own subsidiary. Like are the various ASR slash IRPF people, are they kind of on good terms with each other or is it all in the local ordinances and there's not that much camaraderie between uh, support divisions? Hmm. That would be interesting to uh, have question if they've kept some of the military terminology, military traditions, because within the military, there are a lot of different divisions or corps that do have a lot of internal culture, internal traditions, and rivalries with others that is fully contained within the military itself or within the corporation itself at this point. Hmm. I had a thought, uh, and that thought is that each corp town contracts IRPF and they ask them to enforce their local rules. Are there IRPF slash ASR people who enforce local game rules? Like an augmented reality police force with sparkle powers. The only question would be whether um, ASR chooses to do it themselves or not. That would be the best job, though. I think that'd be just an awesome role. Like IRPF Sparkle Core. All you, you got all these virtual reality uh, gear and equipment weapons to play with. I mean, yes, until you do it for a day and you start realizing the type of people that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Or would Pulse hire hire IRPF people to be umpires for sports events because they would have less investment in particular teams, one presumes. IRPF is not dumb enough to take that contract. You could not pay them enough. <laughs> I don't know. It could be a lot of money. <laughs> but on the subject of like whether IRPF has um, like corp-specific subsidiaries, there might be one single contract governing all relationships with progenitus, say. So at the top of that hierarchy, there may be a progenitus account executive and his, her people could be like the bulk of the like IRPF slash progenitus corporate family. You know, they, they all wear the same kind of gold trim in their uniforms and things like that. It would make perfect sense to have a master contract or a master lease with at a very high corporate corporation to corporation level that then subsidiaries or smaller groups would take the master and then just negotiate out there the amendments that they want. So would that person know all of the secrets or none of the secrets? Or a very, very precise particular intersection of it's not totally a secret, but <laughs> he kind of need, need to know stuff. Yeah, or definitely know who not to talk to about things. <laughs> that would definitely be an executive level position. So mm-hmm. they've got to know a couple of secrets. They know exactly what not to ask. Right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of along those lines, IRPF is unique and they have four shadow presidents. I don't think anybody else does. Nobody else has more than one, but they've got like one for the inner ring, one for, I don't know, I think one for your, each major planet and then one that's the dark. Something along those general lines. I could look it up. 
Um, but it's kind of neat that they've actually divided things up into these like broad jurisdictions. They are kind of hierarchy happy there. Yeah. Which again does mirror a certain military ideology there in that the different um, generals that you have over certain areas, be it the general of the Pacific or the general of like eastern areas, is going to be a general that's in command of both army, navy, air force uh, units. So it's kind of a mixed group, but you still have one person that is kind of the lead at any given time. Mm-hmm. And this has me thinking, so so what might be the equivalent to the different services? I mean, if you split things up, not by what corporation or where you are, but like what military police role you have, I mean, I assume you could kind of chop IRPF's activities into a few different categories and whether they might have their own independent identities, like engineer or RPF people who are more of the cops, RPF people who do more of the military stuff, they might have some a separate identity some rivalry no that's absolutely a good point because you know while i've been kind of referencing military ideology and tradition that's not just what irpf is and does they're pulling in all of the duties of the police force in many cases and while that definitely means the beat cops that also includes the more specialized detectives the more extremely specialized financial crimes or what have you um the crime labs, criminology departments, everything else that you would have that supports. I would, I would not want financial. I would not want financial forensics as a duty in this universe. That sounds like one of the most dangerous jobs. I mean, yeah. Around, yes. Oh, look! I discovered who has the formula for the ledger sequence. Now I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can also imagine, like particularly like IRPF, who are permanently stationed to an area or, or, or corporation. If the more wandering shipboard IRPF are called in, being very kind of antsy, it's like, well, that's our corp too. But you know, we run things a certain way, and you guys, I know you've been called in, but are you going to listen to us? Yeah. Are you going to make everything into a bunch of shit that we have to clean up? You know, I want to go back to those forensic accountants for a moment because we we know, think right? of forensic accountants as like you know quiet, soft-spoken, mousy, very like... Oh, no, this is like... Individual. The, These guys are going to be basically Space Marine accountants. Yeah, They're going to be is, the biggest, bulkiest, heaviest armored, heaviest weapons accountants that you're going to find anywhere because their job is simply yeah. that dangerous. This is like... What Indiana Jones is to an archaeology professor, that's what these guys are to accountants. Uh, I'm remembering that that guy firing his high-tech bow and arrow, firing that that arrow that sticks into the control panel, and then the USB drive comes out of the center. Like, that's hilarious and awesome. (laughs) Okay, we'll file that under jobs I do not want for myself, but might make a nice PC. Uh, there are two groups from Mars Coast history that probably do still have strong influences in IRPF. Uh, the Mars Coast Moral Imperator Division. And I'm kind of imagining this is, as a group, it, wouldn't, it was one of the foundational groups of IRPF back in the day. And I'm imagining they haven't ever quite gone away, but these are kind of like the bleeding heart liberal that kind of comes in for internal auditing and review of your ethical practices. If you were like in a police drama sort of thing, I, I just like that as kind of that, that role for them. These are the groups that invented human rights in this whole soul, basically, <laughs> to stretch the word human a little bit. Another group that I'm kind of wondering how they interact with uh, Mars with IRPF is the Marsco Internal Police Division or Marsco IRPF. These are the group that handles Marsco secrets, but they're still kind of related to the IRPF. So are these like like the guy that's not really top tier in your command, but you do not want to mess with him, maybe? And at the same time, I mean, Marsco and IRPF go 
back a long time. So that's a little piece of IRPF left behind in Descents. So that there's a different kind of almost cousin relationship between the two. Maybe. Marsco IRPF, they protect Marsco secrets and they don't trust IRPF with that so much. So they're they're more very need to know. And I do kind of wonder what, how that plays out in a standard corporate structure. That's where you get those forensic accountants again, I guess. I can see that actually kind of being a conflict because these people are so much like yourselves, but you don't actually share loyalties and that can be kind of creepy. Right, right. And you're definitely a second, I mean, maybe second class citizen isn't the right word, but these are not the people that Marsco trusts with their most important tasks. Anyway, it's worth thinking about. Character roles. Uh, I guess we'll just go kind of in the order they're presented in the books. This is definitely like a wedge of IRPF. It is not everybody because IRPF can be so many things. They can be forensic accountants. Um, data security specialist is a common one. Identity protection. Clearly the entire insurance racket is run by IRPF and Mars go together. So this is a narrow wedge, but it's kind of the more like visible and maybe high paying roles. This one is not a high paying role. Urgent reminder. <laughs> These are people that run up and tell you that you have incurred a debt that you have paid off sort of thing. So they're, uh, or they, maybe they serve, serve divorce papers. They run around and like, you know, make sure you remember that you owe this much money to IRPF. Kind of in the like guerrilla tax collector thing. Oh, did you remember the, um, Buck Goodo's app gun for hire where the, where it's a planet that has, has no income tax. Well, if you can escape income tax for a full year, you don't have to pay it. So the people that, give you your tax assessments are uh, very adventurous people indeed. Repossession agents, that sort of thing. These are very personal roles. They really get close up with people that owe money to the corporation. But also their duties can kind of go beyond the border of a contract because if someone owes you money, they're probably acting outside of a contract at that point. So you got to be a little versatile there. That's the urgent reminder from IRPF's spacefaring period mode. Uh, the dead link pilots are kind of an off-again, on-again thing. These are pilots that do not uh, require data signals and can fight without drones. Hmm. Kind of seems like a useless status class in many... It's like they'd be useless 99 times out of 100, and then 1% of the time, they're the only thing that will work. It's probably not even 1%, but it's one of those that when you're in that situation, you need exactly that tool. Right, right. I mean, drones and autopilots are just vastly superior to meat-based piloting, but sometimes you have to fly blind or fly in the void or whatever. So it's silent running. It's running undetectable by turning off your electronics, right? Uh, Sometimes, yeah, that sounds like it's one aspect of it. It's when you don't have the electronics available, period, for whatever reason. Because that also sounds like FirePF has a significantly invested um, electronic warfare suite on some of their ships. They just blast the immediate area with an all-wavelength, you know, blanket static and cut off everybody's communications, and suddenly they're the only ones around that can fly. <laughs> oh, point. Point, yeah, an EMP bomb sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm also just only vaguely related, but I've been was, was watching something talking about, I think, a Japanese ship like the Yamato, that got caught on fire and they said that it had a fire control center, but the, but it was normally located in the center of the center of the ship and it had been relocated to several different parts of the ship. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and, and when something like that happens, yeah, it's like, well, um, yes, you have to fly the ship and no, we don't have sensors. Do you remember about where we were going <laughs> in, in, inertially? <laughs> Hold on to that. 
Uh, All right, Arbiter. everyone, get your suits on. We're about to cut a window in this play in this thing. Arbiters, Arbiter sounds like a really sexy role. Although I think the consensus on the HSC Discord chat is maybe this is not really a PC role. I don't know. Y'all be the judge. They're kind of legislator and contract litigant and judge all at the same time. So when the contract's language ends or becomes vague, people fall back on the arbiters to kind of establish what the law should be. And it's possible that a corrupt arbiter is one of those dangerous things in Seoul. Yeah. Next to any pulse person who has a, something to prove. So I wonder, I mean, do you hire these people before, you, before you've come up with your laws? It's like, well, we haven't written out all our laws, so we need some, some arbiters. Yeah, sure. A team of them might help establish your initial contract for a fee. And then after, after a few months of that, it's like, okay, we now know what we need to make illegal, <laughs> having yeah. seen what just happened. <laughs> Isn't that the premise to uh, Judge Dredd? Because that's what it sounded like. <laughs> I believe that Judge Dredd is an inquisitor who we'll talk about next. <laughs> it's kind of in the title. Yeah, well, first off, IRPF tends to have pre-formatted contracts that you kind of check boxes off of. So when the boxes run out, then you might need to call in an inquisitor, an arbiter rather. They are also, they get a lot of lobbying. People that want to like find little exceptions carved for them will probably contact their local arbiters. Uh, it's a very stressful job and they probably snap occasionally from time to time. And that sounds uh, like such a powerful NPC just yeah. to move or adjust the story or just to play with the PC's expectations. It's, I don't want to say wasted on a PC, but it, it seems it's like a, a bit, poor fit for a PC. Yeah, but maybe like an, an assistant or like an understudy sort of role might be kind of fun. Because like if you're dealing with an area which has scruffy contracts, when, when, the contract page, when the page is blank, these people are writing the rules as they go along. And for a high-level party, that sounds really kind of exciting, except for the high stress factor. But I see that they might serve better as MacGuffins is kind of what I think you're saying. Mm -hmm. Could be. No, you're definitely right. For a higher level party, that definitely seems more appropriate. You do run across the slight problem of that's a lot of spotlight on one person. How do you yeah. keep that spread around? That may be a more of a patron or a mentor NPC sort of thing. Like a, a PC owned NPC. Yeah, that's right. A player owned NPC sort of affair. Like a major contract contact. But I could see it being, I mean, you'd have to like temper it somehow to make it work as a PC level thing. <laughs> kind of the other side of that coin is the Inquisitors. And these are low level judges. They can actually serve as judges when the court system is kind of overrun or overwhelmed. IRPF does a lot of like on the spot judging and the Inquisitors kind of make that possible. They're able to just do summary judgment for anything under like one year in jail or like mid-level fines. They are, they are kind of judge and jury all at once. More involved things involve like a real court system, but for the most part, these do a lot of the on-the-spot judging. So we're going to lift the entire concept of a lawful neutral paladin here? Uh-huh. Boom. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. When they act as judges, they tend to have a lot of oversight from the arbiter community. So they don't want them to become corrupt. But a arbiter and inquisitor who get too comfortable working with each other... That is a very dangerous thing. And so the people that kind of have the biggest checks and balances on the Inquisitor are the other Inquisitors. They have a internal culture of keeping an eye on each other. And if you'll believe that, you'll believe anything. Who's going to watch the Watchers of the Watchers? The oh, Watchers no, will, of course. Well, yeah, it gets complicated. <laughs> this actually kind of raises something that I don't know why I never thought of it before. But I don't think we have any thoughts on what jails are like in HSD. 
They apparently exist, but uh, I never kind of like HSD does not do mental health. I kind of thought they might like not really do incarceration very well. Why would you waste the financial potential of free labor by sticking them in a room with nothing to do? Well, because you make money just by being sat in a room. You're like a financial battery just sitting alone. You know, you make a lot more money if you're compounding that, though. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) one of my like. This is totally off topic, but one of my uh, location write-ups is of a of a town a town owned by a corporation that really 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 knew how to work the ledger system, like as almost megacorp level financial chicanery, and they basically were keeping their less desirable citizens as like financial batteries, kind of matrix style. I I don't know. It was a better write-up than I just said. I think <laughs> adjutants adjutants. I don't know how to say that adjutants? adjutant. Maybe. That's Possibly. a very British way of saying it, I suspect. These are criminals on the payroll of IRPF, stoolies and things like that. They inform IRPF, and they're kind of the reason why IRPF is able to make very tailored deployments and not do much overkill because they kind of know what to expect a lot. And maybe they have a little; these people have a little more leeway when it comes to their criminal activities, but that's all right. It's for the greater good. The greater good being more profit. The greater good. Don't question that too much. Well, um, if there's no criminals, you don't really need our yeah, right? Well, there's one less criminal. There's not no criminals. That guy was on the payroll, but probably not the entire corporation, unless that was affordable somehow. If crime is <laughs> I mean, more or less petty and under control, you don't need the more expensive IRPF contracts, do you? I just feel like you're suggesting that a corporation like IRPF might need to employ criminals to keep themselves in business. I wouldn't say to keep themselves in business, but... You know, marketing might like a word. <laughs> How small can an IRPF jurisdiction be? Can a megastructure have its small IRPF office in the basement that desperately tries to maintain the local law's integrity against the uh, outside influence? Like, IRPF in an enclave, what's that like? I feel that's in probably one of those uh, corporate feel-good brain messaging Books right up alongside how short of a contract can you write? <laughs> well, like, I wonder, like, if you're, if you are, if you're, if your IPF represents your corporation and you're an ASR enclave in the middle of Europa, now, that is not a possible example, um, but maybe you're a Pulse enclave in the middle of anything else, because Pulse is very small corp towns, if any. How defensive is your IPF dealing with the surrounding sea of law of your neighboring countrymen? Or is that kind of where a, a hot zone might erupt normally? I don't know. A business decide to hire its own separate security if they just were not getting along with their city or township? Yeah, they'll, if, they, if they're big enough to afford a contract. Another kind of interesting kind of related IRPF scenario I can imagine is a um, maybe a corp town that used to be held by some other larger corp that died, like an old genotype stronghold. And so this area has been kind of divided up into like a lot of little fiefdoms, like a lot of little one and two megastructure mini corp towns. And then does IRPF have like a council of elders that kind of governs between them or something like that? Because nothing is really an entire civilization on its own, but each one of these buildings is a city, like less than a mile from another city. So maybe they have like sort of an Ubuntu style of overarching governing board of IRPF officers. I, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting structure to imagine. I guess it comes down to how much money do you have to spend? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, megastructure as city is kind of a good metaphor, and a city is big enough to have its own governing body. 
if it's not the biggest animal in the area. I mean, if the area is owned by Marsco entirely, then Marsco is the governing organization. I believe they call those HOAs. (laughs) With with guns. That sounds like a terrible idea. Texas. Texas. Yeah, it is a terrible idea. It's always been a terrible idea. (laughs) You're talking about different IRPF. Deployment structures is kind of where I was going. Deployment structures, sure. Yeah, you can definitely work with that. Oh no! If you're looking for inspiration for RPF, top dramas have been all the rage for the past decade or so. They're slowly trailing off, but there's a lot of different source material that you can pull from that. Whether it's the different forensics types or the more on the street beat cop types, uh, most of that would translate fairly well to IRPF type scenarios or shorter campaigns contracts. I mean. Yeah, and the new Blood in the Mist uh, novel is basically Miami Vice crime drama sort of thing, but with a little more magic. And I do mean the word magic. Well, Alistair Reynolds, who, of course, we name drop constantly. And, of course, there's just the totally on-topic book of his called The Prefect uh, about police who preside over a belt of blue skies, each of which with their own laws. Even when the horrible thing happens and then we've got to get up, the, get up the nukes to, to destroy this thing. It's like, okay, but we have to take a vote because we're not allowed to use nukes unless we can get a vote of at least two thirds of all the space stations. And uh, it's really hard. But uh, in, in, he's written a few, several other books. I mean, all in the very creative sci-fi genre uh, and lots of investigator characters, really good source material. And I, I'm also just kind of thinking about the, 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 the huge difference between a local IRPF who've lived their entire lives in one area with one set of laws and the huge culture difference, uh, the, the, the difference between IRPF who are who live their entire lives in an area enforcing the same set of laws, become part of that community versus uh, IRPF who move from place to place in a ship, short-term contracts. You learn the set of rules, you implement them, you don't have a lot of attachment afterwards. You forget them because they, they're no no longer relevance. Just the cultural, even though they're both RPF, the cultural difference between them could be really, really huge. That could be very, very hard to bridge. I mean, again, kind of like local police when federal troops are sent in. It's, right. Yeah. Locals versus FBI agents, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're all on the same side, but gosh, you, you, you guys sure are a blunt instrument, aren't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you're you're always, we're all on the same side until you roll in and the locals have kind of gone local for the flip side of that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's like, well, I, I, I see you're not on board with the laws that we have on record for you. It's like, well, it's not that way anymore here. Well, according to what I have, according to this printout, it is the, the, the same <laughs> way. So apparently you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, yeah, dated contracts. That's another one I hadn't considered. IRPF divorce lawyers. I okay. I yeah. just want to say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Yeah, I can see that. That's, that's another kind of where the urgent reminders come in, I think. <laughs> there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. So this is a part of the episode where we talk about what the hosts found awesome this week in news or movies or television, although... News and television lately has been a bit of a drag, so uh, we'll, we'll take what we can get. Water on Mars. Wait, was it Mars or is it the moon? I forget. One of those dry places, which is everywhere besides Earth. 
You tell the best stories, Uncle Wines. I, I do, I do. <laughs> so w- which one was it? They found very Mars. strong evidence. Mars. There was a lot okay. of water on Mars recently. It was found like under a bridge. Um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, uh, under, underneath the kind of the, the dried up oceans. Yeah, that that's that's huge. That's really huge because we really like water. And it's really expensive to get just a single 12-ounce can to Mars. Three buried lakes under Mars. They named them. It'd be cool if they named them, but they didn't. Using Mars Advanced Radar for subsurface and ionosphere sounding, testing uh, under rock stuff with radio waves and found some like subglaciers sort of thing. Uh, one is like 30 kilometers across, smaller ones a few kilometers each, salt water. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, where there's water, there's the possibility of life. Say the pop scientists. It'd be really handy if we could find water on the moon, but I'm not holding my, my breath on that one. Um, there's ice on the moon. Not much, but some. Uh, on, on that note, though, uh, the article that kind of caught my attention this week was that an Austin, Texas company, uh, so fine product, for, fine product of our local industry, Icon, is starting to print. Well, they're getting contracts together to print moon bases, like buildings and installations on the moon. So that's exciting. They started off doing 3D building printing, and now they're going off-world soon. I think they've got like a 15-year contract. So this is like within our lifetime. Well, my lifetime, at least. <laughs> So that's exciting, and it's local too. So, uh, Ashtar, I don't know if you're looking for a job or anything like that, but hey, moon printing. <laughs> and and what uh, on another kind of related thing? What was that ad we were seeing for the? Uh, you know, you loved your dog. Why don't you clone it? The, the actual TV ads for this. I mean, I, I'm waiting for Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger to show up. I just shut down when I saw that. I couldn't like quite process it. I guess if you want to take money from rich people and put it into dog technology, that's fine. Yeah, here's your new puppy. Yeah, of course it's genetically the same. Just take our word for it. <laughs> what? It looks a lot like a Chihuahua? No. <laughs> they all look that way when they're young. <laughs> By the way, we're changing our address. <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about Elon Musk trying to buy Voltaire Station, but I have to explain all the fine details of it, so I won't. <laughs> the cloned great-great-great-great-grandson of uh, Elon Musk, of course. I know, it was weird. Elon um, Musk's brain in a jar. <laughs> whose name makes more sense now, somehow. <laughs> so is, um, is, given that musk candy is a thing in australia is elon musk's name kind of like surely scrumptious in australian i guess i don't know if it's like a popular flavor or not yeah it's a very popular flavor musk candy musk flavor is very popular over there yeah they've got problems but i guess that's all we have time for this week again i guess next week next episode we're going to be covering tti and if you have any questions or topics about the Big 7 you want to send us, please do so. Comments, Telegram, Twitter, Gmail, whatever. It we'll is TTI, talk- so we do not promise to answer any of the questions. But, you know, we will take them. Well, speaking as one of the system's other unreliable narrators, I plan to answer them at length. <laughs> just not necessarily accurately. <laughs> In meter. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe. If you're lucky. But I think that's all the time we have for this week, so catchy outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, 
for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and a full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 